The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in October 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome the Theatre Director, Christopher Ashley. Hi, Chris. It's a delight to be here. I just want to run through a very few of your titles. You've done over uh, 60 different productions that you have directed over the years, including on Broadway, the current hit show, Xanadu, All Shook Up, the Rocky Horror Show, in... Uh, Washington at the Kennedy Center, Sweeney Todd and Merrily We Roll Along, a number of off-Broadway shows, Valhalla, The Most Fabulous Story Ever Told, Blown Sideways Through Life at New York Theater Workshop, Regrets Only Between Us, Wonder of the World, uh, New Yorkers at Manhattan Theater Club, many, many other shows. We'll get into as many as we can during the next hour. But your most recent and newest credit is as the artistic director of the prestigious La Jolla Playhouse out in Southern California. So congratulations on that. You just took over about two weeks ago in the job. It's true. I'm fresh off the bus. <laughs> so what are you doing on the East Coast? You should be out on the West Coast. Uh, it's actually, you know, you do actually end up having to, to run back and forth some. There's casting. Crybaby is rehearsing here right now. Uh-huh. So I'm going to check in on a rehearsal this afternoon, meeting directors, meeting writers, and I was at a wedding, so I had uh, a busy weekend. Well, uh, and you're about to get on a plane to go back out. Tomorrow morning. So, so uh, let me just ask, how did you get the job? About De- uh, Des McEnough has had the job for more than a couple decades, and maybe a decade or so ago there was talk that he was going to be leaving. You pitched for the job in the mid-'90s, didn't get it, but now you did in 2007. So bring us up to date. How did you get the, the current position? You have an excellent research staff, <laughs> <laughs> or you know how to use Google really well. Um, I uh, They started uh, an application process about a year ago, and uh-huh. it was really involved. I mean, they really took their time. They were really careful about it. Um, I think they they considered about 60 people and kept kind of winning it down. Uh, Probably had about 150 hours of interviews before they called up and offered me the job. About maybe 100 hours into it, we would have been about six hours into our interview day. The conversation wound down and uh, there was suddenly silence in the room and someone said, so what else? (laughs) <laughs> which made me laugh a little bit. By the end of it, I had said every possible thing I ever had to say about theater and uh, any idea about running it had come out of my mouth. Mm. So it's a very exhaustive process, but worth it, obviously. It is. It's an amazing theater. It's one of the few that I um, would be delighted to take over. It's it's got. They just did a huge renovation, so there's three very juicy, wonderful uh-huh. spaces. They have a big proscenium theater, a thrust, a great new black box. And under Des, they've had a great kind of history as a theater of both having a huge impact on the American theater scene and sending things to Broadway, Jersey Boys being the most recent uh, example, and also doing really kind of provocative, adventurous theater. Now, you officially took the job on October 2nd. I did. And the local paper has a quote from you. You said, quote, I basically arrived here last Tuesday, had everybody asking me, so what are you going to do? Close quote. How did you answer that question? Um, well, I had for about the last six months, I've actually been sneakily working at the job by telephone. So uh, we had about three plays lined up and, and ready to announce shortly after I took over, uh, which we just announced. We're going to do the a production of Xanadu right before the tour starts. Um, we're doing a, a play from the 30s called Tobacco Road, which everybody has heard of, but no one I know has seen or read. It's sort of, it was very famous on Broadway in the 30s, ran for years, and then kind of fell off everybody's radar screen. It became the second longest-running non-musical in Broadway history. Fantastic. Exactly right. Google is wonderful. <laughs> um, and I sort of, I guess, until I started thinking about plays for this season, I always thought it was sort of Grapes of Wrath, you know, noble uh-huh. poor people. Uh, suffering. And it turns out to be incredibly more demented and uh, interesting. <laughs> they're <than> not <laughs> noble. At all. No. They're, they're, they, they sort of destroy each other in the course of the play. Uh, and uh, a new Charles Bush play that had been commissioned in the last couple of years that um, just... Uh, we did two readings of it last month, and it's, uh, I'm excited, really excited about it. Charles is going to be in it. Um, he, he's been doing the readings of it with a cast of stars, none of whom have signed up yet, so can't talk about them yet. But uh, it's a, it's an amazing thing to design a season. It's a whole different challenge from uh, freelance directing. A season is such a more complicated uh, beast than a play. You know, like a play is two hours. You, you The audience comes in, they see one thing, and they go. But a season has all of these connections and all of this variety needed and you know how how what's spectacular and what's intimate and what's personal and what's political and sort of trying to talk about the whole world in six plays. 
and if you want to do this big show, you may have to do this smaller show. But let me ask you, as someone who's been a freelancer for mm -hmm. over 20 years, God knows you're in demand. It's not that you were sitting there waiting for the phone to ring, but projects in many cases come to you. A playwright or a theater company calls and says, I'd like you to work on this. Now you have the opportunity to set, obviously, the theater's agenda, but your own agenda. Is there work that you personally would like to be able to tackle that maybe you've not had a chance to do as a freelance director? Absolutely. I feel like there's two big things I'm excited about in this job. One is personally as a director, um, the, the stuff that gets sent to me as a freelance director has tended to be very much like the last thing I did. You know what I mean? So I get sent the, the musicals, I get sent the um, goofy comedies, and I get sent one-woman shows for some reason. Uh, and the, the, the ability to program for myself and really say, like, wow, I can really take complete charge of what I'm going to do. And if I'm going to do a Xanadu, I can also do the most kind of um, substantial revival of a classic I can get my hands on and really look for plays with teeth and plays that are um, engaging with the world in the gutsiest way I can imagine. I also just am really excited to produce other people's work. I had a conversation with Oscar Eustace uh, last week, and he was talking about taking over the public and saying that he he felt like the the joys of being an artistic director are parenting joys. As a, like when you when you direct a play, it's yours and it's you up there, and when you produce a play, it's you're it's like watching your kid you know at a at a recital. You're you're rooting for them, but you're you're a parent as opposed to it's 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 your directing work. But you mentioned Oscar Eustace, the artistic director of the public, and he said when he was a guest on this program that he'd made a conscious choice to not be directing. He directed one play in his first season, told us he thought it was probably a mistake to have done that, and has not been directing there since. Do you see yourself as a producer or as a director who invites other directors and other authors to join you? Uh, both. Uh, I, I think that there's there's people who there's two different models out there. There's the kind of director producer. Uh, in the you know George Wolf was like that at the public, uh, and you know his his productions were you know splashy. And I think a lot of the reason he enjoyed the job. Um, and then there's the kind of pure producer um, who doesn't try to direct too. I'm, I'm hoping I can juggle both. I'll certainly direct much less in a year than I used to. I'll probably do two year two plays a year at the Playhouse, maybe one play a year somewhere else. Um, and I used to direct ten plays a year, so that's that's like a, a huge reduction in how much I'm doing. That's extraordinary to do ten shows in a year. Yeah, I was busy. <laughs> well, I would I would imagine maybe I'm, I'm just taking a wild guess that you would be the director of Xanadu at, at La Jolla since you directed uh, it here. Good guess. Uh, that's certainly the plan. So that that's that's the, that's that's kind of a given. Yeah. But this being your first season, the current season obviously is Des's season. So the 2008 2009 is your first season that you're putting in place. Why those three shows? Why kick it off with Xanadu, then why follow it with the Charles Bush show and with uh, Tobacco Road? Um, well, they're, they're three out of what will finally be a six-play subscription season. We've also got this new program that I'm actually really excited about called the Edge Series that I want to uh -huh. talk to you about. Um, but those... Um, I really wanted to, in my first round of announcements, have a musical. I wanted to have a new play, and I wanted to have a revival mm -hmm. um, because those th that will certainly be part of the mix um, mix later on. I wanted to announce at least one thing that I was going to do. Um, I wanted there to be um, some entertainment and some, uh, some challenge in it. I, I wanted to sort of promise both because um, I do think that that's uh, – that's, I, I hope that, that – theater, the Playhouse, can be a place where audiences come um, to really engage with the world in ways that um, that really challenge them. And I hope that they have a good time. And and both and those are in some ways competing impulses, but I think you can wrap them both up in a, in a season. Um, and all the, it's interesting, like, writing that letter to announce those three plays, because there's, you sort of, 
have to reinvent the language of how th- how to get people to into the theater. And any, as soon as you start to write the sentence, it sounds like boilerplate. Mm-hmm. You know, like the provocative, adventurous, innovative, like all of those words have, don't mean anything anymore. And actually how you describe, well, what what would a play be that has some edge on it? Uh, what would a play be that actually makes you uh, uh, surprised, upset, challenged in some way? Uh, I was thinking the other day, okay, what's the most challenging, upsetting moment of theater recently? And the thing that actually jumped to my mind was when Ahmadinejad spoke at Columbia because it was actually controversial. I mean, mm-hmm. and it was, you know, it was a political speech, but it was basically theater. And there were, and it really did actually divide an audience between the people who thought, let him speak. The, the purpose of a democracy is to actually hear what everyone has to say, including your enemy, um, versus the people who said, no, it's a complete betrayal to let him speak, you know, with, at a publicly funded university. Um, and that was that was sort of actual controversy. Um, if, if we can do a play that um, has anywhere near that level of controversy, I think uh, it'll be the most exciting <laughs> theater in America. What about the other three shows? What categories would they fit into, do you think? Uh, the other three that have not announced that, yet? They have not announced, yeah. Uh, to round out the season. There will certainly be another new play or two. I really... Uh, most of the work that I've done in the past as a director has been in the work in the world of new plays and new musicals, um, and that's going to be a big part of what La Jolla Playhouse is up to is is creating new work, uh, commissioning new work, workshopping new stuff. Um, I just a play that's written this year has the possibility of responding to the world in such a fresh way. Um, I'm hoping that there's some politics involved in it. I'm hoping that it it tussles with the personal um, like loneliness is always a huge theme for me and like what is it how do you connect with another human being um, you know how do you allow yourself to be loved and to fall in love with them um, what, go, go ahead well some wonderful musicals have come out of La Jolla most recently Jersey Boys of course the big hit on Broadway may we in those three yet to be announced shows see another new musical emerge? there probably will either uh, in sort of full, uh, glorious, spectacular production or in a more workshoppy way, there will certainly be another musical involved. I'm also very uh, much in conversations with there's a, uh, various local music groups, symphonies. There's a, um, a lot of really amazing uh, music in San Diego. And either in the this next season or in the following season, I'm going to do a Midsummer Night's Dream which uh, uses the Mendelssohn Midsummer as a score and produces the play with the backdrop of symphony orchestra uh, pl- so that the play and the and the classical music kind of interact. Since you mentioned other community groups, I'm wondering how much of an opportunity you've had so far to get a sense of what the audience in La Jolla and San Diego are interested in. Good question. We just did um, a musical a workshop of a musical called Most Wanted, which is about sort of takes the Andrew Cunanan killing spree that started in San Diego, La Jolla as a departure point. There's uh, local interest. That was definitely <laughs> local interest and controversial locally, whether or not that was um, a good uh, subject for a theater piece, whether it was a good subject for a musical, because I think the idea in people's minds of a musical is sort of frivolous, and it was really trying to be a substantial musical that really took on why are Americans so fascinated with fame, uh, and why do we need to be uh, reflected in the lens of the media? Um, I think uh, I think we have a pretty adventurous audience. There's two um, major theaters in San Diego. There's the Old Globe, and there's the Playhouse. Um, and I think uh, the Playhouse has really tried to, in the past, um, position itself uh, like all, always as adventurous and and um, and sort of risk taking as it possibly can, and that's definitely a, a goal into the future. I'm uh, I have a new program that I'm about to start um, of a residency of a local group. Invite we have all of these spaces more really than we have. Um, money to produce in, so we're going to um, invite a local group who's homeless in to do a uh, two-play season at our theater um, with the goal of in- widening our audience, widening the kind of work that happens at the Playhouse, and really putting down deeper roots hmm. in San Diego. Do you see yourself as trying to in any way differentiate yourself 
uh, from the work that Des did, or are you more of a continuation? I love that question. Um, I do think that there's an, always an anxiety of influence when you take over a theater. That the, the pass off between artistic directors uh, always has. It's like the pass off of you know presidents or something. Um, he's made a real point to be incredibly gracious at every moment. He's made himself very available, and as anything I've asked of him, he's been incredibly supportive. Um, they just finished this 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 expansion to to create this. New, there's a new theater. There's a new cabaret space coming on uh, online with a restaurant. We have all of these new kind of workshop rehearsal spaces. So there's kind of a new challenge, which frees me up from some of that anxiety of how desi am I, uh, <laughs> which is we suddenly. Uh, have the ability to really grow as a theater. Um, and anytime I want to do a play, there's a real wealth of choices about, you know, what kind of play is this? Is this a intimate black box kind of a play? Is this a, you know, proscenium play that needs to go to Broadway? Um, I hope that I can keep the adventurousness of what Des did uh, and... Uh, that there's also something personal in the work that's that's just me, but also Des is not totally gone. He's still affiliated. With he's the he's a dir- artistic director emeritus. Okay, <laughs> uh, and the goal is for him to do uh, a play every year or two as well, a play mm-hmm. or a musical. You spoke before about how, that you're going to be directing less. I'm just wondering, since taking this. Are there still projects that you were at work on that you're still going to be able to complete, or? Or are you, have you pretty much cleared your cleared the decks for La Jolla? Um, before I could actually start, the reason I started just now, although they offered it to me about six months ago, is I had this big backlog of things I had agreed to do, including Xanadu. I did a Charles Bush play out at Bay Street, and I had a show at Williamstown, and I have a documentary I'm filming about piano bars that I had tried to finish as much of principal photography on as I could before going out there. Um, but for the first year or two, I'm going to really try to make the work that I do, I'm going to do it at La Jolla. Um, and I think after the, after I've really taken over the theater fully, uh, I think there's going to be a lot more latitude. But for a while, I'm going to really try to make that my home and, and really stay there and do the work there um, all the time. One thing that Des had started was a thing called Page to Stage, which is for new script development. Do you plan to continue that? Absolutely. I think it's great, and I, and I hope to grow it. Actually, he's uh-huh. he'd been doing one a year, and um, I'm trying to to set us up with two or even three for the first year. It's a great thing. The idea being, um, take a new play or a new musical, give it three weeks of rehearsal, give it about two weeks of a run, um, give it it's like first st- staging. Don't expect, uh, don't let the audience expect finished production values, but sort of give it a first chance to to walk before it has to run. Um, No reviews and lots of audience talk back. For Most Wanted, which was a page to stage, we had audience talk back every single night of the run. And it was really useful for the audiences because they needed to talk about it and for the artists because they really heard what the audience was thinking. Is it a two-way communication in the talk back? Do you ask them questions or do they just We do. Um, for, For Most Wanted, uh, I did some of them. Shirley Fishman, uh, who does new uh, play development, did some of them. Uh, the literary manager did some. The artists weren't in the room for those. They sort of they felt on that like they would be too, uh, like somebody would say something that would flip them out too much. But they got real um, complete blow by blows of what the audience um, thought and what they were getting and what was being confusing to them. Before we go back to your childhood and explore your whole career, <laughs> uh, what else do we need to know about you and La Jolla? Anything we missed? Um, there's this new uh, series that um, Des initiated but is sort of just coming to be called the Edge Series that I'm really excited about. We're supposed to do two plays a year, not on subscription, um, which are two I'm going to use all the boilerplate words, provocative, edgy, adventurous, um, to put on subscription. They're supposed to be off subscription. And the idea is not every play is for everybody. That there's that one of the real traps of American regional theaters is you get this big subscriber base and suddenly you're only doing plays that you think everyone will like. And 
if if the goal is for everybody to like it, you're probably not doing anything that interesting all the time. And saying some plays are going to really divide an audience, and there's going to be people there for and people who will never want to see that play. But we have a program for specifically for the most provocative plays. And it's really fun to pitch them to agents because you say, send me your plays that you think no regional theater will do, that you love, but you just think it's too out there and you think they won't do it. We'll do it. Uh, And they've all got, every agent has 15 of those plays that they're really excited about, but they have never been able to convince a theater to get gutsy enough to do. Mm -hmm. I read that you had an agent by the time you were 22. That's awfully precocious. How did you get your start in the theater? Um, that agent was a woman named Helen Merrill, who was hugely influential in my life. Um, she had this thick German accent with a kind of Barbara Walters, like, soft W. Uh, and she... <laughs> couldn't have cared less about her clients making money or the contracts, but she cared deeply uh, about discovering the new exciting artists for American theater. And she would pick people out of college. I mean, she would go see things at like Yale and and Harvard and CUNY and, and, and find people who were 20 who she thought had amazing promise and she would start repping them. Uh, and she was fearless and uh, absolute whatever Helen want, wanted Helen ultimately got and the first uh, she put Paul Rudnick and I together the first time we worked together on Jeffrey uh, which at the time nobody wanted to produce it was way too scary it had all this gay sex in it uh, and she took it down the street to Kyle Rennick who was running the WPA and she put it on his desk and she said you are producing this. I don't care. You don't even have to weed it. Just put it in your season. Uh, and and she was this this kind of lioness. Uh, like it was like having a personal autistic director. You know, she cared so much. But what had you been doing that got you to Helen's attention? I was doing a play at the EST Marathon, a Richard Greenberg play called Neptune's Hips. Uh, which he uh, and she was Richard's um, agent and she came and saw it and I guess really liked it and she was really honest she, she was the the second play I did when, with her um, she came up afterwards and she said well of course it's just terrible <laughs> she would always tell me what she thinks she would call me up at four in the morning and I would say Helen it's four in the morning why are you calling and she would say art never sweeps Mm-hmm. But even before that, you went to Yale. You studied English literature and mathematics. Both true. Not, not theater. Not, you, you were involved in theater, but you, you weren't a major, as I understand. I wasn't. I. Uh, so how did you get into, into theater? I always did theater. I did it as a kid, as an actor, and uh, I directed in high school, and I directed, I don't know, 15 plays when I was at Yale as an undergrad. Um, but I always thought that it was going to be a hobby. I always thought that no sensible person would actually go into theater, that uh, you know, you couldn't actually pay your rent. And ultimately, it was like a great, fun thing to do along the way. But eventually, I would be an investment banker or something. Did you get that thing, that thing from your parents saying, have a, get a real job? No, my parents yeah. were sort of uh, very young when I was born and sort of uh, had a 60s hippie mentality, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, very left wing. And they were my parents always wanted me to do whatever was was going to make me happy but uh i went to andover and yale and i thought it was going to be important to you know have an apartment uh and and no roommate when i was 40 um and eventually uh i said well you know let's give it a try when i got out of college and i sort of i had helen and the first play i did at the wpa got a really nice times review and moved commercially and so it's i i, I was very lucky very early and got to skip some of the paying dues steps <laughs> Well, you mentioned uh, Paul Rudnick already, and it's it's worth noting that you have done a number of Paul Rudnick plays and indeed a number of plays with Doug Carter Bean. I'm wondering if you can talk about how you came to work. I mean, you've explained that Helen put you together with, with Paul, but how did that working relationship develop first with Paul and, and with Doug? Because they really have extended over a long period of time, which particularly in a freelance career is is remarkable. Uh, um, I love writers. I, I, they're my a lot of my very best friends are writers, uh, and what they do were to create something from nothing. I have immense awe about. 
Um, you know, what directors do is they take a page and, you know, interpret or stage or it, it's it's ultimately you start with something and you make it something, you know, more. But that, that blank page is a thing I never have to stare at, uh, except for now when I'm uh, writing ad copy. But uh, the... The writer's act, I think, is amazing. And uh, both of them are uniquely, in my experience, um, generous and tough on their own work, uh, really aggressive rewriters, uh, fun to be around, a delight to party with after the show, uh, respectful of actors. They both – they sit in rehearsals and they, they – beam joy at the actors uh they love a good acting choice uh and both of them i have very in rehearsals very low boundaries with um i'll say what i think about their writing they'll say what they think about the direction um and it's there's a real uh they're both joys to work with i loved them together in the question and you've been talking about how they're similar what what are the the differences that you like to explore in their work how does how does paul's work uh appeal in different ways than, than Doug's? Um, the last couple of things I've done of Doug's have been musicals, and I've actually never worked on a musical with Paul. Um, I don't think Paul's ever really done a musical. Um, Paul mostly does plays and and has a very successful movie life. Um, and uh, and Doug, we've been uh, the, both Xanadu and his previous uh, musical, Big Time, we worked on together. Um, and I did his one of his early plays, The Country Club. With Cynthia Nixon and Amy Sedaris, uh, he used to run the the drama department, which was like a, had a very Mickey and Judy feel to it. It was really like kids putting on a show. Only the kids. But he the, was the artistic. He director. was the art- artistic director, and the kids who were putting on the show were also, you know, often major movie stars and like the, the great lights of the American theater. So it had a funny combination of. Uh, like kind of page six fame and very unpretentious kind of uh, low budge playful theater making. Uh, you talk about working with uh, with Paul Rudnick and with uh, Douglas Carter Bean from the early stages, from the, the the creative. Is that typical of a director to work from the very beginning with a writer? Uh, or is it just the way that you and they work? Yeah, I feel like one of the frustrations of being a freelance director is you don't actually get to see how other directors work very much. Um, I probably will be able to answer that question much better after I've been an artistic director for a couple of years. I love to work with uh, writers from the very beginning. Um, When the play is still a seed and hasn't become a tree yet, it can be anything. And I feel like my production grows very organically out of the conversations we have about what the play is going to be. It's not like a later like set of arbitrary choices it's really interacting with the the development of that play and when i say like oh what if what if the set's like this then suddenly the play gets written for that set um if we start talking about a particular actor um i start staging for that actor they start writing for that actor um you know it feels it feels like the way it's supposed to be so when either paul or or doug are writing how much of chris ashley ends up on the page and do your words end up or just your Never. ideas your thoughts it's really not it's, they are really the writers um i uh I, I feel like all those conversations about what it could be are a, a very different act from actually writing it and they're the one who has to sit down at, at home at night with the uh, blank computer screen, or in Paul's case, I think still the blank typewriter pay- paper. He really still types. Uh, but uh, I feel like I am really offering something to that writer, but it's not writing. You do go back and forth between plays and musicals, and I'm wondering whether they offer you different opportunities and and as a director, just in terms of the style of a play versus the style of a musical, and frankly, the the process, because there's usually so many more people on board in a musical. Can you tell me about just what what the experience is for you between, between plays and musicals? I feel like directing a musical is sort of like uh, being a general in an army. <laughs> 
you know, you're not doing all the specific things yourself. You're creating a battle plan. Um, and there's going to be a music director in one room teaching the music and a choreographer in another room creating the dances and uh, an orchestrator. And there's all of these, like, many, many people who have to get on the same page about what it is that you're doing. And what you're doing is you're articulating a style and a vision and a world for it to happen. And then a lot of other people will help you rehearse it. Unlike a play, which is very personal, and there's no rehearsal really of a play when the director's not in the room. It's really you and the playwright and the actors creating a thing together. So one of the things I like about going back and forth is all of the um, kind of strategic battle planning of a musical, which is very stressful and, and like has much more administration in it. Uh, do that for a couple times and then do the what's the much more intimate experience of creating a play. I, I like the contrast. You've also had the opportunity to work on a number of musicals, which I will refer to as catalog musicals, that they were new musicals created using existing songs, and you've done different styles. Does that give you more of a creative opportunity to shape the show, or is that still the writer's impulse in, in how that's put together? I th- well, I think directors of musicals... Uh, are a really primary creative force. Uh, I don't know why that. Why a musical? If a, if a director is not strong on a musical, it falls apart. A play can can sustain itself with some uh, some sort of cautious directing, but a cautiously directed musical is nothing. It's you've got to be bold with them. Uh, catalog musicals are. Uh, they're they're both freeing and frustrating. Uh, you have to work with this pre-existing song. You can't go back to the writer and say, what is that lyric? That doesn't work in the story. And and kind of making a pre-existing song work in a story is a, a great limitation and a frustrating limitation. And when it works, it's better than anything because people come in the door with real emotional attachment to that music. This is particularly true of Xanadu. You know, like you hit the downbeat of one of those ELO songs or one of those the songs that people know from the Xanadu album and they go crazy from the downbeat note because they, they're, they're excited to hear that song and that energy that an audience provides when they know the music is immense and a real gift. Um, but once you've got that energy, you better use it to make a story that's working because there's nothing worse than, oh, it's that song, but it's less good than I imagined. I mean, that's a terrible place to leave an audience. Well, there is an expectation. As you say, there can be the anticipation or an expectation certainly on um, on uh, the Elvis musical, uh, All Shook Up. People come in with a very set idea of what those songs are going to be and – Unlike Xanadu, where the sound is very similar to the recordings, there wasn't an attempt to have everybody out there doing Elvis impersonations. At all. No, we, we made a specific choice on All Shook Up to try to reinvent those songs, uh, which I think Stephen Aremus, the musical supervisor, did brilliantly. Um, but it's it splits an audience because there's people who are thrilled to hear those, those songs reinvented, and there's people who have an emotional attachment to the way they heard them in their childhood and want that experience again. If you were redoing All Shook Up Now, would you do it any differently? For those people who have the expectation of seeing Elvis or hearing the songs the way they remember them. Uh, I uh, I was really proud of All Shook Up. I uh, I might do it in a slightly smaller theater because mm-hmm. uh, I do think that there was an audience for it, although it, it never quite that audience never quite made it to profitability in the palace. Uh it's always a good question of like, what would you do differently? Uh, well, hindsight after could be twenty twenty. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and Broadway musicals are uh, have like so. There's so many potential cooks in the room that like just keeping the 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 it, it feeling still like a casserole and, and not like a sorbet is uh, <laughs> is work. Uh, I don't know. Is there anything that you would do differently on All Shook Up? <laughs> I'm, I'm not a director. <laughs> Let's talk about another show. Talk about a, a bold statement in a musical. People have expectations, familiar with the music. Um, a little musical for which you had a uh, Tony nomination, The Rocky Horror Show. How did you get involved in that? And, and tell us what you did with that show. Uh, Jordan Roth, the producer, called me up and said, I want to do Rocky Horror and do you have any interest in talking about it? And I was a real Rocky Horror kid as a as a as a teenager. I would kind of get dressed up on the Saturday nights and and go to the, the late night midnight show. And uh, so 
Uh, I was totally excited to think about that show. Um, I, I thought that you can't kind of divorce yourself from the movie on that. So we really kept the m- movie making as a part of the show. There was a um, – you first met Brad and Janet in a black and white movie and then they kind of stepped out of the screen and there was kind of back projection. Um, and then once we got to the castle, there was a um, a whole kind of club TV life as part of it. Um, I, I really wanted to keep my – my experience from childhood of what, what I loved about it was that the audience shouted back at the screen and I wanted to keep the audience participation a really active part of it. Um, and there was, uh, a, I guess it ran for on, sort of on and off for a year and it took a little downtime around nine 11, but at about a year and a half overall. And by closing night, the audience had actually, by some strange process of uh, silent communication, arrived at a script of what they were supposed to say in talkback. And they all knew it, and they all said it as one with perfect clarity. And I, I, I to this day, I don't understand how that evolved, because it's not the same as the movie script. Many of those people in that audience had never... Like they, they certainly didn't get together and talk about it online. It just... A, a, a script evolved... Uh, and they got better and better at it. And uh, it was an amazing experience being in that audience, hearing them as one shout out those talkback uh, lines. Uh, I love that cast. I love that space for that show. It was sort of, we sort of did it in the circle in the square in the round. You had a great design. That was David Rockwell's first theater design, as I recall. I, it was. And he, you, you used the space remarkably in a way that people who are familiar with Circle in the Square probably had not seen before. Uh, it was perfect for us because no, no matter how you stage in Circle in the Square, you always see audience behind the action. And for Rocky Horror, that turned out to be perfect. Especially if they're dressed in the, in the, in the mode of the show. Yeah. There was, there, was, it, there was sort of a limit of how long an actor could stay in that show. It's really hard to ask an actor to stay in whatever reality that show has, you know, to stay in the story when people are shouting out asshole slut at, <laughs> at you night day in and day out. Um, and, and about six months into it, I saw it happen with almost every actor. They would start to want to turn and talk to the back to the audience hmm. and it would ruin the show as soon as they did. I mean, the rule really was the narrator can talk to the audience. Frankenfurter can, but everybody else has to stay in the show um, because you have to have some, story truth even in the Rocky Horror show although if you try to tell people the story of Rocky Horror how aliens came uh, from the planet transsexual tran- in the galaxy of Transylvania they think you're insane yeah totally yeah. and and I would like I, I would love those note sessions where I would have to sort of straight facedly remind the cast of what the story was that we were trying to tell <laughs> and guys we have to be faithful to the story but you actually weirdly maybe more importantly in that kind of show have to be faithful to the story uh, because it's it takes so much effort of will to believe it. How did you find actors who you felt would be right for the part? Tom Hewitt, for example, told us when he went in for the, the role, he went in high heels and fishnets, I guess. He did. He had uh, I had worked with him on Jeffrey on stage, and uh, he came in, he had like an... He had really thought his way through the songs he was going to sing. He had fishnets, but he also had fishnets on his arms, and he had four different patterned fishnets, like for each arm and for each leg. So he had this like very strong costuming idea. And Tom managed to be in his audition, and I think finally in the show, both really he really accessed a kind of outrageous female diva, and also managed to be really male simultaneously. Which is a really tough trick and and one that I loved watching. You've had the opportunity to film a couple of the shows that you did on stage, uh, Jeffrey and Blown Sideways Through Life, and you just mentioned uh, that you're putting together a documentary. What is uh, what does film offer you that that maybe you can't do on stage that that appeals or or you've really stayed mostly with stage work? Is that is that really where your heart is? Um. I sort of love both. Uh, theater is really what happens in the rehearsal room is the center of what I love about theater. Uh, it's it, I love watching an audience watch a play too, but rehearsals are so fun and playful, and I can't quite believe people pay me to do it. It's 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 all the best of being a kid and imagining, and especially if you make theater at a with a high level of actor. 
the the kind of honor of saying, let's try it this way, and then watching amazing, talented, imaginative people give you back something that is more than what you said, <laughs> that is what you said plus real insight and real talent and real imagination. I love that process. Um, film, I mean, the amazing thing about film to me is that it lasts, that, you know, I did the movie of Jeffrey in 94 and you could still turn on your television and there's the movie of Jeffrey. Uh, and it's sort of, it never goes away. And theater has this strange, it just evaporates when it's gone and it, then it only exists in people's memories. Um, and if you do it well, it exists in a really powerful way in the memory. But uh, there's something really satisfying on film about um, you do the work and it's uh, you can always look at it and all the mistakes are there forever, which is uh, frustrating and all the triumphs are there. Do you have a preference one over the other? I don't really. Uh, I uh, I feel like in theater, especially now that I run my own theater, uh, I have a lot of ability to kind of control my own destiny, uh, which is not true for me in film as much at all. Um, but uh, I'll be really happy if I can keep both in my life. And in theater, earlier we talked, uh, you talked about the differences in directing a musical versus directing a play. The musical having many other people involved, choreographer and whatever, and play being much more the director. Do you have a preference there, musicals versus straight plays? I don't. Uh, I When a musical is working, it is the best thing in the world. When a musical really fulfills itself, the... The feeling in the room is orgasmic in a way that it's really hard for a play to achieve. Um, on the other hand, I it's really important to me to use theater to in some way engage with the world and what's happening politically and what's happening in the newspaper. And, uh, and I kind of – I think plays are better at, at investigating – all of the gray tones of what it is to be a human being and all of the complexities. Uh, and musicals give you a kind of pure ecstasy in, in on stage in a way that's uh, unlike anything else. We keep touching on Xanadu throughout this conversation. We haven't really tackled it directly. When Doug Bean was on the show a few months ago, um, he talked about sort of the, the changes in the show, that it was a show that went through a lot of workshops and a lot of change. Can you talk a little about what Xanadu was the first time Doug showed you a script and and how it, it transformed? Because at, having seen one of those workshops, I know it changed significantly. It did. It changed hugely, although it's funny that he said it had a lot of workshops because it's the fastest from the first draft to Broadway that I've ever not only worked on, but actually ever seen that we did. He wrote it. We did a reading. He rewrote it. We did another reading. He rewrote it. We did a workshop and it was on Broadway three months later. So it was really, it never went out of town. It was a kind of straight path. Every, every moment it was changing. Absolutely. And it went right to Broadway, um, which was sort of terrifying to me. Um, it, when he first wrote it, he wanted to talk about the uh, the kind of larger socio-political scene in the 80s and Reagan was a character and Joan Collins was a character and uh, uh, sorry, moving out. My, my, my mind is going, the choreographer Twyla Tharp was a character. Uh, it, it was really wide-ranging and it was there was hilarious things in it, but it, it really didn't have a center. Uh, and as we were kept working on it, we kept realizing, oh, this is strangely a love story. And you have to commit to the love story between a beach guy in Santa Monica in 1980 and the muse who comes down and convinces him to create great art through through roller disco. And that is actually the story. And you we really have to to track the love story yeah, and, and make finding it, the truth like what you were saying about uh, Rocky Horror uh, and, 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 and it, it kept rewarding us every time we would try to find the truth of that relationship the, I mean the, it's, it's got absurd story givens but every time we said this no this is really happening this is really a love story and we have to try to get the audience actually involved in it then the show would start to work um, he invented from whole cloth 
the evil sisters, the evil muse sisters, because the movie has no plot threat in it at all. Um, and uh, Jackie and Mary were, I think, in the first reading of it. It's Jackie uh, Hoffman, Mary Jackie, Testa. Exactly right. And uh, kind of were defining immediately, like, yes, that's exactly the right idea. Um, but no, it, it, uh, he's, it's what I was saying earlier when you were asking me about what I like about them as writers. He's really merciless on himself. And we did the first reading and we said, well, this is what's great and this is what doesn't work at all. And he went and, and actually rewrote it completely. And every time we would do a reading or a workshop, he would rewrite it completely uh, and he, it wasn't kind of moving commas around and, you know, changing a clause. It was really, let's change the story. Let's throw out what doesn't work and let's really reinvestigate. Well, prior to the show's opening, there was a lot of press, some of it negative, some of it kind of speculating, how can they take this terrible movie and make it into a Broadway show? And then something happened during previews where the lead actor, James Carpinello, injured himself and couldn't go on. He was on roller skates and hurt his foot, his ankle, and you had to replace him. What sort of challenges did all that represent? The the speculation in the press about what kind of a show is this going to be, and then the, the lead before opening hurting himself. What, what, what challenges did that bring you? It was uh, an amazing time putting that show together. I mean, it, <laughs> That's probably an understatement. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was certainly everybody was ready for it to fail big. Mm-hmm. And uh, James breaking his foot and his leg uh, was really shell-shocked that company um and uh strangely it ended up because we had to push back opening it ended up giving us time to really work on the show uh that we would never have had it it, uh, any other way we we previewed for seven weeks which is huge amount of time for a broadway show what what was Um, it supposed to be three weeks three and a half weeks um i think sarah va was the last show that previewed as long as we we previewed uh And uh, so as 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 hard and, and horrible for James and, and the company as some of that was, we actually it, – it, it did really good work on the show every minute of that. Um, I also think that expectations were so low when that show opened <laughs> that part of the, the – like some of those reviews, I felt like my mother could have written them. They were crazily good. And I, I think some of that was like, wow, we expected this to be so terrible, and we really enjoyed it. Like, there was a kind of wonder at the surprise that they felt sitting in the audience and enjoying the show. Um, and it, it was funny to do a show based on a movie that doesn't work mm-hmm. and and that um, I have incredible feelings about. I love that album. I watched it a lot, that movie a lot as a kid. And I think a lot of um, – People uh, who were, you know, teenagers or in their early 20s in 1980 when that movie came out have real emotional attachment to that that movie and that soundtrack. And it's the songs they were listening to when they dated for the first time and when they kissed for the first time. Uh, But the story doesn't work at all. So we basically tried to capture what's great about the music uh, and start again on story. Well, what sort of effect did it have not only on you but on the cast? In other words, the seven-week delay, yeah. people think about, oh, my God, you know, the star has been injured. He can't go on. And, and then all the speculation in the press. What kind of impact did that have on, on the actors, on the cast? And what did you do to, to keep the, to, to, to rally the troops? Uh, it, I would say it really brought that cast together. Uh-huh. Um, there's this tiny, tiny little green room. And we would have notes every day in this tiny little green room. And we all, everybody was kind of crunched together in this little sub-basement at the Helen Hayes. And uh, the way everybody got through it was really to start trusting each other more and more. Um, And I made a real conscious decision. I was always going to let the cast know what I knew and was always going to just tell the truth to them um, so that they were never going to have to read anything online that I could have told them uh, ahead of time. Or in Um, somebody's press article. Yeah. So so I think that they knew everything as soon as I did. And uh, they – they really pulled together, and I think the show you it kept getting better for their trust in each other. Um, so it, it strangely bonded that cast in a way that no tr- trust exercise ever would. And you replaced uh, James Carpinello, the injured actor, with Cheyenne Jackson, with whom you had worked and all shook up. Was mm-hmm. that was it your your call to do that? To replace him? Uh, we sort of uh, the, the Douglas Carter Bean and I and all and Rob Aaron's the lead producer and all the producers and the casting agent. We all kind of got together and said. What are we going to do? Uh, and he came in really as a favor. I mean, he um, he had done a workshop of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And uh, so he sort of knew it a little bit ahead of time. But he went into that show in three days. And it's a huge part. He has 10 songs. And he almost never leaves the stage. And it's really a big part. Uh, And he just kind of jumped into it and said, great, let's give it a try. Um, And I announced, I guess he started on a Tuesday. And I uh, announced that he was going to go on on Friday. And we actually put him on a day ahead of time on Thursday because I thought better to let him get a kind of preview under his belt before all the chat rooms are talking. To take us full circle back to where we started the conversation, namely the beginning of your tenure at La Jolla Playhouse, it's worth noting we've been talking about Broadway, we've been talking about Off-Broadway, but you've done a lot of regional work as well. Goodspeed, Philadelphia Theater Company, American Repertory Theater, uh, the Intamon. And you. I often hear from itinerant artists, guests at regional companies, they talk about where they liked being. They talk about where it wasn't as easy to go and be a guest. And I'm wondering how that experience of being out at all of those companies is going to impact on the theater that you want to create at La Jolla. I I definitely feel like I have a very strong set of opinions about uh, how to treat artists in order to get the best work out of them um, and how to create a home for artists. Um, I uh, So I think all of that time spent in regional theater and as a freelance director uh, will hopefully really pay off. I also just personally, um, I, at some level, I feel like uh, freelance directing is like dating. You're constantly meeting new people and kind of having a quick relationship with them and moving on. And the, the thing I'm more excited about than anything at the Playhouse is actually getting to have a relationship with an audience, with a staff, and really settle down and say, okay, let's not just do a quick play together and then move on. Let's let's spend years together. Let's really get to know each other. Let's talk to each other across the plays, across the seasons, and really explore the world together. That's exciting to me. Now, you are a director. You're going to be working with other directors. What about the temptation to say, oh, do it this way, do it that way? How, how will you adjust in your own thinking to now being the artistic director employing other directors um i hope i'm gonna do that with uh both being honest with them about what i think and also respectful about ways in which they're a different director from me i that's one of the ways in which i've had both experiences i've had uh artistic directors who i felt like really supported me as a freelance director and really always told me what they think but always within the context of I'm here to allow you and the cast to do their best work or the people who really intruded. Um, And I'm hoping that I'm honest and uh, that I uh, am supportive. Well, we will look forward to the 2008-2009 season at La Jolla, your first. And congratulations on your new job. We're only a couple weeks old as of right now. And, Chris, thanks for being with us today on Downstage Center. My absolute pleasure. Thanks, Chris. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.